0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. My name is Nathan Hill, and I'm very, very excited to introduce to you what I think is probably one of the most interesting conversations that we've had on this podcast. Today's guest is Doug White, and there's a lot to say about Doug. He's a longtime leader in the philanthropic community. He's an author, he's a teacher, and he's been an advisor to many nonprofits and philanthropists. His list of accomplishments is honestly way too long to even put a dent in here, but most importantly for today's podcast, Doug is the author of a book called Wounded Charity that came out this past fall. And in the book, Doug explores some fairly contentious media allegations that were against the Wounded Warrior Project back in September of 2016. As Doug investigated the story, he actually found that a lot of the allegations weren't exactly fair or really true. And on the podcast today, he shares some lessons he learned through this investigation about nonprofit trust, creating transparency, and being wise and intentional with your generosity. There's a lot in this conversation that I think you'll enjoy. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Doug White.
2: Hi, Doug. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brady. It's good to be here. All right. so uh, I want to talk a lot about your book, Wounded Charity, but before we dive into your book, uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about how did you get into the charitable space in the first place, and then kind of what led you to even write this book?
1: There's a long gap between those two (laughs) endpoints, but without giving away my age, about 40 years ago I was invited to a dinner that was to celebrate the 200th anniversary of my high school, my school that I went to in New Hampshire. And after the dinner, somebody asked me if I knew why I was invited. And I said, no, but it was a great dinner and thank you very much. And he said, well, we were hoping that you would, you would volunteer to ask some people for money to support the capital campaign in honor of our 200th anniversary. And I said, I'd be glad to do that. And he gave me a list of five people to go see. It was all in New Hampshire. And I lived in New Hampshire at the time. And I went to see them all. And he asked me if I could get $1,000 from each of them. And I did. Uh, That was the goal, $1,000. Now, nobody would Mm -hmm. expect you to get $1,000 from five people on a first shot. (laughs) I did. And I loved it. The process was so fun because they were talking about this concept of having – the ability to give back to this organization that had given them so much. Although I, I could feel that because I went to the school, but I wasn't that age. And so I hadn't had the life experience to kind of reflect on it that way. But I was Mm. really impressed with the sentiment and the emotion that they had and the connection Mm. they had. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting part of, of our society before that I would, I was in sales Mm. for life insurance and financial products. And so I felt like this was a whole new dimension. It was really interesting right. to me. So that began that journey. As I say, that was, hmm. I think, 40 years ago, maybe this month. It was 1979 <laughs> and late. So, my goodness. At any rate, the journey was long,
2: <laughs>
1: and it was not straight. And I tell students, as I'm invited back to speak to different places, I say, uh, don't don't think that uh, – your journey is going to be as you envision it right now. Yeah, have a vision, please do, because that reflects the, your 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 intelligence and your your drive. But uh, don't be afraid. don't Don't worry if it doesn't go in the way you're thinking. And I can guarantee mm. it won't go in the way you're thinking. Just period. Right. Yeah, and uh, I I think that's scary for a lot of people. It's scary for a lot of mm. parents whose children are getting out of high school or even college. But it's a truth, and it shouldn't be scary, and we have to get past that. So my yeah. journey was not straight. I was never scared of taking the wrong turn. It's a good thing because I've taken a lot of wrong
2: turns. <laughs>
1: but I really tried to find out more about the nonprofit world and about generosity or, or philanthropy uh, from all sorts of different perspectives. So I've worked as a fundraiser. I've volunteered as a fundraiser. I am and have been a trustee at an organi- at several organizations. I've worked in the financial investment world because a lot of organizations mm. have endowments that need to be invested. And I used to begin be in planned giving where those gifts are invested. So the investment part of that was a large part of my life for about ten years. For the last ten or fifteen years, I've been teaching and concentrating on board governance. Hmm. Every question that's important, if you take it to where it originally originates, will be the board. And yeah. so you want to make sure that the board is doing what it should be doing. So board governance has become my, my area of interest uh, over the last 10 or 15 years on the nonprofit side. And then yeah. on the donor side, I've been very interested in making sure that donors are able to make gifts that they want to make that it's uh, in sync with the organization's desires
2: mm-hmm. and
1: to make sure that the organization follows through on its promises to those donors.
2: Yeah. that That's awesome. And I mean I, I thank you off-air for the, the work that you've done, but I'll thank you on-air for, for the work that you've done, especially now. I mean the, the longer that I've uh, been in the space and working with nonprofits, the more you do realize that it's, it's board and senior leadership in terms of mindset and views and beliefs and approach – that really have a huge impact on whether the organization can do the types of things that they need to be doing or not. You know, if you're the marketing director who's totally sold on what needs to happen, but senior leadership and board aren't on board, then you can't do it. You know, and it's, it's such a huge, huge deal. And I think we often underrate how, how important that is. So I'm glad there's folks like you working at that level with boards to, to try to figure that out.
1: One person told me about 10 years ago, she had estimated that of, all of the charities in the United States, there were approximately 9 million board seats among nonprofits. (laughs) And she was sounding the alarm because she had heard that almost half of them were unfilled. And I looked at her and I said, I'm worried about the ones that are filled (laughs) because they can do so much damage. And boards, boards are not, in the limelight, as you know, they're they're in the background. The yeah. person in the limelight is the CEO, for the mm-hmm. most part, or the president or whatever the title is. That's the face of the organization. The board is usually in the background. But that said, the board is still the most important body at mm-hmm. the organization. And we really need to have good governance and, and more engaged boards.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, that's maybe a good tie into to your latest book, where you know most of your books. I think this is your fifth book, but most of your books evolve around this idea of you know ethics and government governance, whether it's related to the board or even on the planned giving or major gift side, right? Of you mentioned these, you've covered these uh, pretty you know famous cases around gifts that haven't been used and lawsuits, and there's whole e- area of ethics and governance for nonprofits. Um, so leading into this book, Wounded Charity. Um, what what led you to write this book? Why did you feel like, hey, I, this is a book that I had to read? And then for those that are unfamiliar, can you give us the quick synopsis of the book?
1: Sure. Wounded Warrior Project is the largest veterans service organization in the United States. As of 2016, they were raising almost $400 million per year. What happened was in January 2016, CBS News ran a story on a Tuesday night about how things were going badly at Wounded Warrior Project. The next morning, the New York Times ran a story that was very similar. And that same day, that Wednesday, there were two more big stories, one in the morning news, one in the evening news about Wounded Warrior Project. That was a three-part story altogether. So there was a lot of criticism coming to Wounded Warrior Project. And I got a call from one of the volunteers at Wounded Warrior Project. I had never had any contact prior to this point with Wounded Warrior Project. I knew of them, of course. Everybody had heard of them. I had spoken about them because they were such a large organization and were raising money successfully and and fairly quickly. But I knew nothing about them. I knew no one at the organization, no staff people, no board people, no volunteers. Hmm. This volunteer calls me out of the blue that same week i had an article in the chronicle of philanthropy criticizing charity navigator one of the regulators or the one of the not regulators but one of the evaluators of charities
0: mm-hmm. in the
1: united states and one of the resources that both the cbs news reporter and the new york times reporter used was Charity Navigator, right. So that reporter felt that I might be able to help out in terms of answering some questions. Mm-hmm. He said that the stories were wrong. See, at that moment, Brady, I had no reason to think those stories were wrong. Right. I had spent a lifetime really looking into into charities that had done bad things and commenting on it, and 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 I want to make sure that charities act well. So mm-hmm. I was not inclined to think these stories were incorrect. But I was told by the volunteer that if I would called the the CEO and the COO the next day or two, I would get a more complete story as to why they felt this was incorrect reporting. And I did that. And they asked me to come down to Jacksonville to do a broad review of their programs. And Mm -hmm. I said I could not do that because I was working at Columbia at the time and didn't have the time to do that, they said, look, that's okay. We're not going to know anything really for a month. We're We're doing a financial audit right now, but maybe we can revisit this question in a month or so. I said, okay. But then I said, I remember very clearly saying, if I were to do such a thing and you were to be paying me a consulting fee or a fee for doing this work, do not get the impression that you would be whitewashed that would not be in my best interests and it would not be in the organization's best interests and it would not be public's best interests. So I want you to be clear. I want to be clear to you as what I said, that I'm not going to uh, give you any favor uh, if I do this. And their response Mm -hmm. was, we would expect nothing less. Hmm. Okay. Well then we go forward and then a month later they're fired. And then We don't know why, but apparently, you know, this is a bad – bad things were happening at this organization. But there was a report, as I said a moment ago, there was this audit that was being done, a financial audit. They concluded that the allegations were mostly incorrect. Hmm. Okay, well then, what next? The next piece of news in that same news conference was that the two people responsible, the two people I had talked to, the CEO and the COO, were being fired as of right then. Into there mm-hmm. that did not make sense and then the original volunteer called back and said now i'm really confused because the allegations aren't right and yet everybody's still talking about them because everybody talks about what cbs and the new york times talk about mm-hmm. why were steve and al fired steve nardisi was the ceo and al giordano was the coo I said i don't know He said well let's is there a way we can find out mm-hmm. i started to sniff around a bit And it looked more and more like something really was amiss at the board level. Mm. Again, I didn't have the time to really put to this. Over that spring, this was in January, so by March, early March, they had been fired. So March and April, I really started to dig into this and say, this doesn't make sense. I want to know what's going on. So by the end of the academic year, I decided two things. One is... If you've ever worked in a university, you know that especially in a leadership position, there's a lot of minutia. There's a lot of administrative work and mm-hmm. getting overwhelmed with that. And I wasn't able to do the teaching and the exploration that I wanted to do. So mm. I was primed for this. But I was then already <laughs> ready to, to look into this big time because this was a very large charity. A lot of mysterious things were taking place. and I just wanted to find out about it. So it was a, yeah. it was a very, for me, it was an important question that had broader implications than just for wounded.
2: Yeah, of course. And uh, what what were some of those uh, a- allegations, um, again, for people who maybe don't know, what were some of the allegations that was made by reporters of CBS and New York Times that uh, you kind of thought, mm, maybe this isn't quite uh, as accurate as, <laughs> as they think it is?
1: The first thing that I noticed was we here in the United States use a 990 to show financial activity a charity. That 990 showed, for the year prior, about $26 million being used on conferences. One of the people who was complaining about Wounded Warrior Project said that they were wasting money at a very large conference in Colorado, and this money could have been better spent serving veterans. That's an easy thing to say, and for the most part that might be true if there's a lot of waste going on you certainly want as Mm -hmm. much money to go toward the program as possible but by the same token there's a lot that goes into programming there Mm -hmm. the the people who work at the organization really promote programs even though on the irs forum we don't see it that way Uh, the people who answer the phones are really promoting programs even though they're considered overhead so we have Mm a Whole lot of work to do in that area. But <laughs> to, to, to get back to your question here, we, we had this allegation that money was being spent frivolously on money, booze, and fun at these conferences. And so CBS showed this number it was $26 million. And isn't that terrible? All of this money being wasted. That was the implication. Hmm. And yet, at those conferences, much work is done. And next to that number that they were highlighting on the air was another number showing how much of that was being used to educate and to uh, have have meetings during those conferences because they're team building meetings. You, know, you bring a couple mm-hmm. hundred people together uh, in a year; uh, it's a it's a big deal. Ninety five percent of that was not for anything other than than conference uh, 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 educational forums, mm-hmm. and so the money was not being misspent and anybody who knows charities knows this. It's like not a surprise why CBS decided not to ask that question or not having asked it why they didn't show the two numbers next to each other is is a mystery to me. I I don't believe CBS is, is equipped to really comment on its own anyway about charities and charity activity but that was one of yeah. the allegations that there was money being spent frivolously gotcha. at at these conferences.
2: So it wasn't it wasn't just purely uh look at how much they're spending on marketing and fundraising necessarily it was a layer deeper saying look at how much they're spending on these conferences in particular and what an example of a waste uh a frivolous waste this is is that accurate?
1: That is accurate. Now as part of that they also said that wounded warrior project was spending 60 cents on the dollar for its veterans that is to say programs and so 40 cents the implication is 40 cents is being wasted right and and in our simplistic narrative that has been built over the last couple of decades that's what people are led to believe so why is so little being spent on on programs is what CBS was asking, and New York mm-hmm. Times was asking the same thing. One of the resources that they were using was Charity Navigator. Right. And Charity Navigator showed 60 cents on the dollar. Now, I spoke with Charity Navigator after this in, in research for the book. What is done when you are sending out information is that, you sometimes talk about programmatic activity and sometimes you talk about fundraising. And so you can jointly allocate costs. And there's a whole set of directions from the IRS on how to do this. And there's also a set of directions coming out of the uh, what's called GAAP in the United States, G-A-A-P, the Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, which is really the, mm-hmm. the Bible for accountants. So both the IRS and the accounting profession have guidelines for this. And Wounded Warrior Project was following those guidelines. (laughs) It's so hard to say this because it's almost laughable. Charity Navigator disregarded those rules and took all of the money that was allocated for this one other purpose and put them all into fundraising. So it really skewed the, the, the final bottom line crazy and it is crazy now that's a separate question from saying is 60 cents <laughs> on the dollar a good number or a bad one many people have an opinion about that i per- particularly do not because it, 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 an answer to that has has so many other components to it
0: Agreed, i can't say totally. whether
1: 60 cents is good or bad all by itself all, all alone but yeah. but charity navigator i think was was well i know there were Misstating that number,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many um, unfortunate, damaging things even within it, right? To to boil things down to a simplistic equation, to uh, miscalculate funds. I know I worked for a startup nonprofit in ver, for my very first job out of grad school, and I know that. I mean, we're relatively small organizations, so how we chose to allocate staff time and certain marketing expenses was as fundraising. We could swing our ratios. 10, 20 percent, depending on how aggressive we want it to be, totally legal within IRS guidelines and accounting guidelines, which just how we chose to allocate expenses. And so us as a small organization could go from like the most efficient nonprofit you've ever seen to like a waste of money just with a few strokes of a pencil, which is absolutely crazy. Right. And most people don't understand that that's the system that we've created. And then organizations like you mentioned, like Charity Navigator, create that are really Well respected by journalists and a source to lean on, that's who they get their information. Is also very kind of often misguided. So there's so many factors that go into the story, which is why I think it's so interesting that you wrote this book, right? Because there's journalism, there's the systems we use to evaluate, there's a lack of education, there's you know maybe how wounded warrior maybe reacted or handled this from a board level or communications level. So maybe like continuing on with the story and a bit of the book, what what were some of the like key outcomes from this or key lessons that that you saw either on the nonprofit side or the donor philanthropy side coming out of this?
1: Well, there are so many. Um, One, one would be that uh, charities need to be prepared for a crisis Hmm. no matter what. Many charities Hmm. are not prepared for a crisis. Many charities believe they don't have to be prepared for a crisis because they'll never run into a crisis.
2: Right. Interesting.
1: But that is not prudent. So, I think that charities need to prepare themselves for a crisis. Steve Nardizi, the CEO of Wounded Warrior Project, wanted that to take place. And there's documentation of that fact. He's, no, he's not just saying this after the He wanted the board to have a crisis plan in place. They did not. And as a result... The board really blew it afterwards, after the allegations were made. There was radio silence all over the place. And so hmm. whenever there's a, a vacuum, people are going to fill it. The news media are going to fill it. They're going to start blaming uh, people. And if there's a story to be told, the the bottom line is, is no matter how difficult this is, uh, you want to stay ahead of the story. Hmm. So if anything negative comes out, you want to be the first to, to explain it to people. You want to be the first right. to... Get it out there, and and wounded warrior project just didn't do that. In fact, they not only were not in fr- front of this story, they also tried to to silence, and they did silence uh, the senior staff. So crisis management is a is a big deal. Hmm. Um, th- another lesson here in this particular situation is that uh, the board has to be engaged. Now, this particular board, I won't say was a bad board in, in any malicious sort of a way but in this particular case the board I feel strongly was trying to accommodate too many organizations and what I mean mm-hmm. by that Brady is that Wounded Warrior Project is a veterans organization and as veterans uh, as a veterans organization they wanted first of all to reach out to their clientele, the people who had come home from war but they also wanted to have a better relationship with the veterans administration and Mm. the department of defense This particular case. There was a very successful ad campaign on television, uh, where ads were shown to have veterans coming home. They were wounded talking about how WWP was helping them. Mm -hmm. The department of defense didn't like those ads. And there were some people who decided that we should basically try to satisfy the, the feelings of the Department of Defense. Mm. Well, Steve Nardizi took the position that we're not an arm of the Department of Defense. Right, We're a, an independent charity. And so it doesn't really matter what they think. And so he didn't ingratiate himself to people at, 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 in the Defense Department. Uh, especially Michael Mullen, who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Hmm. who criticized those ads tremendously. So the sense of independence is is a critical take from this. And then, of course, again, in this particular case, you had one board member who was pretty much leading the others to this conclusion. In this particular case, and i'm not giving anything away because it's not really a who done it i think it'll read just as interestingly even if you know <laughs> this particular fact one of the board members was also a senior executive at cbs corporation
2: oh interesting
1: and it's my thesis i can't i can't say that i can prove it but i'm sure of it nonetheless that this particular board member whose name is richard jones made it his mission to neutralize WWP. He came on board in order to neutralize them because he had great relations with the Department of Defense. He has a stellar resume when it comes to veterans' activities. He leads that particular department up at CBS. And I think he's a good guy. I mean, what, I, what I've tried to do, even though I've criticized the board, I've criticized the reporters at the New York Times and CBS, I don't impugn their integrity. In fact, to go out of my way to point out to the reader that these people hmm. have accomplishments and we can't forget that. Yeah. But in this particular case, in this particular situation, I believe that the board did a bad thing for its own organization. In fact, right. I was prepared and had a letter ready to go to the attorney general in Florida, the attorney general in Virginia and the attorney general in New York state to ask if the board should not have recused itself during this situation because they were they had such a conflict of interest.
2: Huh. Interesting. What a what a fascinating story. Um, yeah. now, now people like have to read the book. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> Well, one of the one of the key points in there that that you pointed out, and whether it's Charity Navigator or CBS or often people on boards for organizations that are maybe not doing a good job, the number that are truly malicious or trying to do harm is so minuscule, yes. right? Even even with nonprofits that maybe don't do a great job or something like the amount that are truly scams or truly you know yeah malicious is such a small small number but yet when you hear certain stories or the way things can maybe be painted it can come across like look at these people doing harm and the reality is most people are trying to do well they just don't know how they haven't been trained they're disengaged they are undereducated like there's a number of reasons that lead to this but i think that is a really important thing to you know to point out to people is and and as as you just did it's not like you know whether it's the c e o or people of the board or CBS, b they're not sitting there saying, "Hey, what can we what can we you know concoct to do this really terrible evil thing? you know that's just not how most people are doing these things, which is what makes the coverage so unfortunate because can- it can come across sounding so malicious or so evil in intent right isn't that part of the damage Yes,
1: over the years, although charities are highly regarded in society, they've lost some of their cachet, and this is partly why we have a more Discerning public, and that's good. And so we ought to look at charities. In the old days, if you were a charity, you could do no wrong, and that's not good either. But yeah, totally. But I think what your point is uh, the follow-up to my point. Your point is that let's keep in mind that malice at charities is, is minuscule. Okay, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of examples of that. So when we point out what's going wrong at a charity, we have to decide. Or figure out what's really meant to be wrong because somebody's really a bad actor. And where people are just making a lot of mistakes. Right. And and so in the charity world, as in government and as in business, people are going to make mistakes. Good people yeah. are going to make mistakes. And I teach ethics a lot and it's not a question of saying, okay, what's the right answer here? People in class will say, well, was that ethical? And they disagree with something. Well, like, that's the wrong question. You disagree with mm. it. That's you know, that's not asking whether it's ethical. An ethical dilemma is a dilemma because there are no good answers.
2: Right, right. And,
1: and so you, when you have people making a choice that you would not make, that doesn't make, make the other person a bad person. Right. And we have to have more of that understanding, not only among charities, but... As we speak at <laughs> our nation's capital, we're going through some real convulsions. Because we don't trust one another. We don't trust right. that other people have good intentions. There was a time when people of opposing political parties could say, I disagree with you, but let's go have a drink and let's talk about it. Yeah. That's that's much, much rarer today. And yep. and so if you get back into the nonprofit world. We have to understand that most leaders are trying their best. They're not getting paid a lot of money, and boards are not getting paid at all. And so it, it's a matter of, of, of trying to figure out how to go forward in the best way. And when I teach, it's a matter of teaching people about values and respecting other people and understanding where mm. you're coming from and knowing the facts. And A lot of things go into the equation, but yeah. it's that as opposed to saying, well, you're really a bad person.
2: Right, right, right. So maybe kind of moving the conversation forward, and obviously everyone should go you know, read the whole book and they'll learn what the fallout from Wounded Warrior and what's happened since and all that kind of stuff. But kind of when, when I get in these conversations sometimes um, – it feels overwhelming right of just like okay we've got you know media that's maybe un- edu- undereducated or not as knowledgeable and we've got you know these watchdog groups that are highly trusted but maybe a little off base and you know a lot of people come into nonprofits that haven't been trained in nonprofit they've come from other areas and maybe don't have a great understanding of governance or ethics and it's like so so what do we do <laughs> like how do we how do we solve this or how do we move it forward so like what are some ideas or opportunities or areas, like what can people listening and you and I, like what can we do to actually uh, make sure that we're in a better position 10, 15, 20 years from now?
1: I'm hearing two questions in there and I might be inventing one of them, but let me just answer the first, the way I'm hearing you, it. You
2: can invent as many questions as you like and answer <laughs> them. Just go for it.
1: Well, I, I love the way you're nuancing this and it's, it's fun, but a lot of times I hear people ask, uh, what can I do to make sure my gift is going to a good place? Okay, Mm. and my answer is that there is no one stop shopping, including Charity Navigator. That Mm -hmm. a donor really has to take it upon himself or herself to do some homework. Yeah, the idea behind giving away money is profound, it's not natural. You don't throw away money, (laughs) you're not going to throw a ten dollar bill into the fireplace it's just not going to happen (laughs) and yet you are going to give ten dollars or twenty dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to a charity and you're never going to see that money again and you're not going to get Mm -hmm. any real benefit from that Mm -hmm. so what's the difference well the difference is Mm -hmm. that you think it's going to be used well so it's up to you to figure out how it's going to be used or that it is going to be used well and i'm agnostic to that in the united states we have charities all over the place who who serve all sorts of causes and uh, you know uh, it would be ridiculous to say this is a good charity or a bad charity based on the on the cause they have mm-hmm. um, the key thing is finding out what cause is important to you Do you like dogs yep. do you like veterans do you like firemen mm-hmm. Do you like education do you like the, whatever it is find mm-hmm. out what really speaks to you and in my mm-hmm. own work, when I deal with philanthropists, it sounds like a pretty basic question, but a lot of, a lot of people haven't really figured that out for themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they have to figure that out first. Yep. Then you say, that's okay, a here's point. a good cause. And then you have to go to an organization that is going to serve that cause well. And that's yep. where the donor has to do some work. The donor has to sit down and say, okay, what is this organization all about? Go to the donor, go to the organization's website find out what they think is important for you to know if you can talk to people at the organization talk to those people find out as much as you can and uh then make a decision clearly if you're giving away ten dollars you're not going to do the kind of research that someone who's going to give away a million dollars is going to do but still you should be you should be satisfied that you're not doing the equivalent of throwing it into the fireplace yep the second question i had was go ahead i was no,
2: to. just the the one thing I, w- I, I add because um, I think that's such an er- interesting area of like how can we help donors do better. But two of the things that I've often suggested, one, just like ask friends, like what organizations do you support that you like, right? So if your friend supports an organization and they, they trust them, then that's probably a good indicator that it's a decent organization. And the thing that I don't know if enough, especially larger donors do, but I'd be, you work with them more than I do, make a small donation. Like if you give an organization $25 and just see – how do they thank you? Do they do any sort of impact reporting at all? But like how they treat a small donor in their communications is probably a very good indicator of how this organization operates overall in terms of donor care. And so almost like, you know, make a small donation to 10, see which one gives you the best feeling and then give more to that one. You know, instead of trying to do this research behind the scenes and then make a huge gift, like why don't we do these small little gifts and actually – you know, get some data back and actually see which ones we want to support. But those are a couple of things that I've always found interesting for, for people to do. So anyways, keep going.
1: I, I, I agree with that, uh, especially for the, for the normal donor. You've really got to, uh, to, to, to do that kind of investigation and, and finding out how they treat the small donors is a very good way of finding out how they are as an organization.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Sorry, I cut you off. The the second question that that I was asking was like, you know, how how do we – what do we do? And that was one. How do we help donors or how do donors make good decisions? But then you were going to answer the second question. Which is? Oh, which is like – so in the nonprofit space, so we've got how do we help donors or how do donors know that their donation is being used properly? But maybe on the nonprofit side, right, where there's like undereducated journalists, there's you know media that maybe doesn't know what's going on. We've got these watchdog groups and it can feel overwhelming. What is it that we can do? You and I, nonprofits, what can we do to help make sure that this isn't the same case 15, 20 years from now?
1: Be aggressively transparent. Mm. Aggressively. There's an organization in Washington that I did not work with, but which said that they are transparent because they file their 990. And uh, yeah, it's a laughable comment, right? I mean, like, are you kidding? Um, what what a charity? And this is one of the ironies of the Wounded Warrior Project crisis, as they were and are, they continue to be very transparent. Show show the public the programs you're you're conducting Mm -hmm. uh show both the narrative and the statistics you have Mm -hmm. to have the balance neither one is going to carry the day entirely the numbers tell and the stories sell it's an old Mm -hmm. adage in in sales Mm -hmm. and charities are in the sales business when they're trying Mm -hmm. to get donors to give them money they're in the sales business it might sound a little flawed to say it that way but it but they are. They're in the sales business. Mm-hmm. They're trying to mm-hmm. get people to give them money. And it's really hard because they don't have anything to give back except their reputation. So be as transparent as possible. Mm. Show the public what you are doing. And don't don't hide things. If something goes wrong, hit it. Be as transparent and as aggressive about it as possible. That's one of the pillars, I think. I have four pillars that I've identified as ethical pillars transparency is one of them and mm. you're not legally required to be transparent and
2: right. i
1: i am so tired of hearing people say uh but it's legal and i say well i don't really care i accept that i, I care <laughs> that it is legal but i care <laughs> right, about right. far more than that bare bones assessment i care yep. about how you how you deal with the public and if i'm being shown nothing then you're not creating any trust for me or in me, yeah. So, how do we make sure that ten to fifteen years from now this won't come back and bite you, or that you are more importantly that you are showing an impact? Show the impact.
2: Show what yeah. you're doing.
1: And impact. I know you know this. You're probably talking about this a lot in your podcast. Impact is a large word right now in the nonprofit mm-hmm. space, but really we're having difficulty, you know, nailing it down. What does that mean? What it means is something different for, for every organization. But it isn't, yep. for example, the, the 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 homeless shelter having, let's say, 100 dinners per night, and then the next year you show that there, there are 200 dinners per night. That's not, to me, impact. Because mm-hmm. all that does is show me that you've fed twice as many people. But I don't know that you've fed them the same amount. If you've cut them <laughs> in right half... Then you know what's going on here. So, and I dealt with a homeless shelter in upstate New York some years ago. They began to think about the quality of the food. It's not just the quantity, but it's the quality. Yeah. We get these guys yep. and gals in many cases. Uh, the, the really the leftover bad stuff that's really going to be bad for them. Or can we pay attention in a cost effective way to mm-hmm. to the nutrition of this food? So those are the questions that should be asked and should be shown to be asked on the on the organization's website that kind of yeah. transparency
2: yeah. And it's it's an interesting one for sure, because obviously impact means a lot of different things. And at one level, it is unbelievably complicated. I mean, some of the issues that nonprofits are trying to solve are so convoluted and so intense and so, you know, connected to other issues that it is very difficult to show in a singular fashion, true impact. But at the other level, like it's the easiest thing in the world to communicate. Like we exist to help kids. So the first nonprofit, we exist to help kids in Zambia receive education and food. So let's just show them getting food and how many kids we're educating each year and how do we get better about communicating that impact from there. But let's you know, start with those things. Uh, and a few years ago – so my background was international development. But a few years ago, I wrote uh, this kind of post on the new international development movement and looked at organizations like uh, Watsi and Charity Water was in there. There's a, there's a new charity called New Story um, where they're just – they're radically transparent with – Here's exactly where your money is going. Here's a, every single patient that we've helped in a Google spreadsheet that you can just look at, you know, that where they're being so radically transparent and they all communicate their failures. A failed launch, a failed project, failed reports. Doctors Without Borders is a famous one for their failed report, right? So like these, these things – and they do work over time. It's not for everyone but, you know, these are fast, fast, fast growing organizations on the fundraising side and I think it's because – in large part, due to the radical transparency. So I I think, you know, one of the questions I was... Oh, sir, go ahead. I was going to say, it wouldn't be nice if we woke up and said, I want to fail today. Hmm.
1: Because we don't do that, and we don't want to do that. But failure is such a great teacher.
2: Yeah, I'm just creating this presentation right now about blind spots and fundraising, and I think one of them is we, we haven't acknowledged that what we're doing isn't working. And until you kind of admit that You know, we're failing, like giving isn't growing, there's fewer people giving today than there were five years ago, uh, even though there's more people. So like, whatever we're doing isn't working. And until we can admit that, then we're not going to make any changes. And it's, it's the similar side in the nonprofit space, like what we're doing isn't working. Or if you can't admit failure, then it's really hard to make changes. And I do think that that mindset, uh, hopefully is more prevalent, both, you know, on the online fundraising optimization side, which is more our world, but, you know, on the board governance side as well as being open to to failure, you know, which is more of your world. I think that's really, really, really key for, for all of us in this whole sector. So, um, and those were some. Uh, there was a question like, "What can we do to, to j- improve and optimize generosity?" But I think that's that's two of them. You know, embrace failure and and have radical transparency. I don't know if you'd add anything else to that question about what we can do to improve generosity, but we can end with that one.
1: Well, okay, and I'm glad you are ending with that one because I think that's the existential one. The idea behind nonprofits is to improve society, where government can't do it alone or business can't do it alone. I think over time, business, government, and nonprofits are going to have to work more together than they mm. are today. But the nonprofit sector plays a very crucial role. And what we're doing is we're harnessing that generosity. And the philanthropist, as you know, philanthropy is the love of humankind. And so the idea behind philanthropy is to improve humankind because of our love for it. So the question is, how do we improve generosity? I think of it more of a way of trying to figure out a way to Uh, improve the vehicles that generosity can be explained and manifested Hmm. i believe that there is a generosity strand in almost every one of us in the in the world i don't believe Mm -hmm. the united states even though we like to think of ourselves as being very generous we are but we don't have the 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 bottom line when it comes to generosity or philanthropy i think that mm-hmm. we can learn from a lot and at, at columbia i wanted to bring people in from all over the world not to teach them how we do it only but also to learn from them
2: mm-hmm. and we
1: had some great people from china china we, we, you don't think of that as being you know in terms of the numbers the most generous country in the world but there are generous people in it they just don't have the infrastructure yet to, uh, to express it the same way we do in the United States. So right. generosity is going nowhere. In, I, I think it's going to continue to grow, but we want to be sure that it has a result. Hmm. And so we want to make sure that the heart is connected to the head, and hmm. that will have to be done, I think, organizationally. Individuals can't be expected to do this on their own. They have to have some sort of a structural Mechanism to express their generosity in effective ways. And that's our challenge right now. Uh, I feel very strongly that hmm. uh, human beings are, are extremely generous. And well, it's our job, really, to make sure that that generosity is not wasted.
2: Hmm. That's great. Let's, let's end there. That's a great place to end. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing about your book and all of your different experiences. Uh, again, we, we could probably chat for hours and hours and hours, so I appreciate you taking this time. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work, and your book?
1: Well, um, I have a website, dougwhite.net. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, both of them have a phone number and an email address, uh, so it's fairly easy to get to. The book is to be found everywhere. I, I, it's obviously going to be on Amazon. Everybody knows Amazon is a great book, <laughs> bookseller. And uh, I, I, the, the, there's nothing wrong with that. But I also want to encourage, this is going to sound quaint and not very efficient, but I would like you to encourage your listeners to, if they're interested in buying the book, to go to their local bookstore mm. and have the bookstore um, order it. It'll take a few more days and you won't get the Amazon discount. But you'll be supporting that bookstore. Um, I, I, I think it's important, uh, I, and I know I, I know in my heart it's probably a lo- losing cause. But I don't want it to be, and I hope that something can happen that won't be a, make it a losing cause. But buy it from the bookstore if you can. But I'll, you know, if you're going to be like a lot of people, you can get it on Amazon.
2: All right. So try to get it from your local bookstore if you can. But if not, for whatever reason, you can find it on Amazon. We'll be sure to send out the links to uh, your site and maybe a, a couple bookstores that people can find it. So, Doug, thank you again so much for coming on and for all your work.
1: Thank you, Brady. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and to get to know you as well.
2: Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to The Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search The Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. NextAfter After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.